So as you were singing, it is well with my soul. Do you believe that? Do you feel that? And if so, why? You know, it started the first service, and I sang that whole song in the first service, and then I sang it again, and it was just as powerful this time. But that it is well, and why is it well? Not because of our circumstance, not because of how good you've been, but because of who God is, right? Yeah, I mean, what was that song we were singing? You know, soul, keep your eyes on Him, or, you know, trust in Him. It's all about Him. And because of who God is, we, it is well. Because of who He is, despite circumstances, we can have our joy, peace, hope uh, in Him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you that we can say it is well with our soul. And, and I would ask that if anybody is in here this morning and it is not well with their soul, God, they, uh, they're holding on to something, uh, a fear, um, a stress, a sin, whatever it is, God, I, I pray that you would show us that and that you would fill us with your spirit, uh, your spirit of peace, of joy, of hope, God, that it would be well with our soul. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, so go ahead and turn there. There's a Bible in the seat in front of you. You can grab that if you need. But have you ever shaken the hand of a concrete worker, a, a construction worker, somebody that really does the work day in and day out? When you shake their hand, what do you feel? Calluses, right? You know, I mean, those guys that really work, they develop these calluses on their hands that are just, you know, it's calluses on top of calluses and, and cracks, and that you're sure that they could have their hand run over by a truck and they probably wouldn't even feel a thing. Because that's what a callus does. Elise, who is our youngest, and she's 10, about two years ago, she really got into the bars at recess. And one day she came home and she showed me her hands. And she had these construction worker calluses all across her palms just from doing the bars. Or how about these guitar players up here? Maybe you played guitar. If you've never played guitar, you know, and you've just tried it, you've gone, how can they do this? You play a song or two, and your hands hurt until you develop those calluses on your fingers. And I haven't played for a couple of years, really, and I still have some calluses on my fingers. What are calluses? They're a buildup, right, of constantly doing something. You get a buildup that numbs your senses in that area. So let me ask this. Do we have calluses on our hearts or on our souls? What I mean is, is there an area of your life that you are, you're kind of hardened to? You've lost sensitivity. Maybe it's a, a sin. You've, you've done it so many times that you, you see it in Scripture and you just glance over it. Or maybe the pastor preaching talks about it and you just kind of plug your ears for that part. You know, or it just bounces off because you're just so callous. Yeah, I just don't believe that. Or maybe a belief, something before you knew Jesus that you believed certain things and you still, you know, it's like, I still really want to believe that. I have a hard time believing these new things. Are, are you calloused because of, over time, building up uh, basically an immunity or building up a lack of sensitivity to something spiritually? Well, today, this is what Paul is going to be talking about. You know, what areas of life can be numb? And what he's really going to be saying is, before we knew Christ and those people who still don't know Christ, they're numb, and, and, and he's going to describe their thinking, and then he's going to say, but we, as Jesus followers, we're different. We aren't to be that way anymore. In the book of Ephesians, we've gone through the first three chapters, and we recently started chapter four, 
and the first three chapters are all about knowing some things. That's why we've titled this series, Know and Do. But know who you are in Christ. Know what God has done for you. Know some things. And in those first three chapters, we see these great blessings of what God has done in us. You know, we are, we are adopted. We are forgiven. We are given uh, enlightened and understanding of God's cosmic plan, which is pretty cool. Uh, we, we know some things, and then we're given the Holy Spirit, eternal security and hope in our salvation, saved by faith, not by works. We saw all, all of that. Then we go into uh, chapter 4, and the next three chapters are now, because of these things that you know, because of these things that are true, now your life should look different. Look at Ephesians 4.1. He begins with, with this phrase. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, because Paul was in prison for him, so he's writing that. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So his first command, no commands in the first three chapters. Now the first command is walk worthy. All these things are true of you. Now live like it. Walk worthy. And as we looked over the last month or so, as we've gone through, the first thing he touches on is our unity. You, as God's people, walk worthy and first maintain the unity you have in the Spirit. That would be within individual churches primarily, but then also within uh, the, the authentic Christian community. Other churches in town, too, uh, maintain unity. Why? Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So we maintain unity. Then he went on in Ephesians 4 to not only maintain unity, but be involved with the community using the gifts. You've been given a gift, using your talents uh, to progress the mission of the church and to serve one another. And, and we do that, we participate for how long? Till when? Till everyone is mature. So, forever. And, until Christ returns or we go to be with him, we engage, we use, we leverage ourselves for the benefit of others' growth and maturity. And now he's going to start kind of describing what that maturity looks like. He's going to describe the walk of a Jesus follower. And we're going to see a pattern throughout these three chapters. Don't do this. Do this. Stop doing this, and now do this, this contrast. And here he's going to begin in verse 17. Let me start in verse 17, Ephesians 4, 17. He says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. It's kind of interesting. These are Gentiles, primarily, in the city of Ephesus and, and around there. And he's telling the Gentiles, don't be like Gentiles. The word Gentile was a non-Jew. But since Jesus, Jesus came, died on the cross, rose from the dead, the Jews were, were no longer God's people in the same way that they were before. And now, Jews and Gentiles are all brought into one. Whoever is a follower of Jesus Christ now becomes the new body of Christ, including Jews, including Gentiles. So Gentile now is used for anybody that's not a follower of Christ. Anybody not in a relationship with God through Jesus, believing in his death and resurrection. Those are Gentiles. And he gives them this instruction, don't walk like the Gentiles. But notice his wording. No longer walk, meaning you used to. This used to be who you were. You used to walk this way, but don't do it anymore. Maybe some of your... Translations say, you know, mine says, now I testify. Yours might say, I insist. I kind of like that translation a little bit better because this command is really powerful. 
He's saying, hey, I'm in prison for the Lord, and I'm telling you what to do now. Do not walk like you used to. It's, it's emphatic. It's bold. It's blunt. And he's going to then describe the life of a non-believer, which is actually fairly offensive. Um, it's not politically correct at all, but he's, he's giving us that example for the believer to go, are you thinking this way? And here's the way you are to look. Paul, this is in your notes, instructs us to live differently than the non-believers around us. To live differently. And he's going to contrast the, the life of the non-believer with the life of the believer. But he begins with the mind. He begins with the mind. Look at verse, what's well, the end of verse 17. It says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He uses quite a few words here that are not flattering. But summing it all up, he says that non-believers live their lives on the basis of meaningless views and perspectives. Yikes. Meaningless views and perspectives. I found this quote as I was studying for this. There was no name on it, but I'm just letting you know, I didn't make this up. It says, life is vain, futile, and without purpose unless it's ordered around God and His purposes. Life is vain, futile, and without purpose unless it's ordered around God and His purposes. The writer of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. And so here he's saying those who don't fear the Lord, those who don't have Jesus Christ, they don't have what they need to have to thrive. And the words he uses, let's look at some of those. Futile. Their thinking is futile. That, that word means vain, purposeless. It can also mean unreality, meaning their thinking is not correct. It's not in line with what's actually true. Or it is aimless due to lack of purpose. You know, you can, you can think of this as a worldview. You know, how does the non-believer view the world and, and view their own life? What are the things that they think are important or the things that they pursue? You know, we can wrap a lot of that up into fame, fortune, power, pleasure. Those are kind of the categories that we, without Christ, we want to follow those things. And Now, with Christ, we're tempted still, aren't we? Pursuing fame fortune, power, and pleasure, pursuing this way. And he says their thinking is futile and darkened. Their thinking, their minds are darkened. Do you remember before you knew Christ, when you thought of spiritual things, there was a fog there? That's what he means. They don't understand true spiritual reality. They, they might think they do. Maybe they like the Eastern mysticism thing because it's spiritual, but they're darkened to what's true. You know, before somebody knows Christ, they hear this idea, that the gospel, the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, died on the cross for our sins, that our sin earned us eternity in hell. That's offensive. Separated from God. And that Jesus, God in flesh, died on the cross, shed his blood so we could be forgiven. Then he rose from the dead. Before you knew Christ, did you hear that and go, those people are silly. How can those people think that, right? I mean, that spiritual truth, maybe you thought that sounds great. I wish that was true. But 
you know, it's hard to believe. Darkened to spiritual truth. That's what he's talking about. Now, do we have some examples of the way a worldly worldview, so an unbiblical and ungodly worldview, views things that are clearly false, but they want them to be true? How about this one, abortion? You know, our, our culture right now has taken abortion and gone, you know, you can kill a baby anywhere, you know, up to when it's born, no big deal. It's not actually a life. At our heart of hearts, don't we know that's wrong? Right. We just, we just know that that's a life and, and that's murder. But they've become so callous to it that now, I mean, it's normal in this country. It, it's just happening all the time. How about this? Uh, how about the idea of, of gender right now? You know, there's no such thing as boy or girl. It's all just in the head or what? Well, <laughs> there's biology. I mean, it's, it's, that's one of those such plain truths. There is biology, and yet it's so confused. And you wonder, how can you be so confused? But they are. Evolution. Evolution sounds great. You know why evolution sounds great? Because if evolution is true, there's no God, which means I'm my own God, and I can do whatever makes me happy. Sounds kind of good. But it's all wrapped up in this idea uh, that it, as you study it and you compare it to true you know, biblical creationism, it's not even as logical as creation. You know, the, the, the view of evolution that, that things are formed by one small change after another, right? If there's a small change that's beneficial to a species, it'll be passed on to the next generation and the next. And by small changes, things change. Well, let's look at the eyeball. There's no way you can get the eyeball by doing that because a small change, any one little piece of the eyeball is actually worthless without the whole. So on the way to get an eyeball, you'd get this one piece. It's like, oh, that's worthless, and it would be bred out. So it doesn't make sense. But yet, people want to believe that. I remember having a conversation with a friend just about this evolution thing, and, and I talked about the eyeball and other things. And finally, he was honest, and he went, you know what? I just want to believe it. He said, I want to believe what I want to believe, so leave me alone. And that's kind of the idea. The non-believer is in this hopeless state because of their hard heart and unwillingness to repent and turn to Jesus. That's what these words here used are saying. They're kind of giving the responsibility to the person. Because they've hardened their own heart to truth, to spiritual reality, God gives them over to that. That's the pattern you see in Scripture. That we pursue the things we want and God gives us over to that. And so it's not God's fault that people are darkened, but it is God's fault when we become enlightened. There's kind of a tension there. Here's a philosopher. He's a professor of philosophy in New York, and he was honest. He said it this way. I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this here myself. I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope I'm right with my belief. It's that I hope there's no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He's being honest. That's the state that Paul is describing in the mind of a non-believer, which we used to be. And he says that they are ignorant. Now, ignorant, at first we think ignorant means stupid. It doesn't mean stupid. Uh, or unable to be taught, it, does, it doesn't mean that. In fact, being ignorant, it's not an excuse to miss out on the truth. Paul, the same author of Ephesians, wrote the book of Romans, and he says this in Romans 1, 19 to 20. Speaking of non-believers, he says, For what can be known about God 
is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. His point is those that are ignorant choose to remain in their ignorance all the way. But this is not Paul's point. (laughs) I mean, Paul is describing this, but his point isn't to, hey, remember how you used to be and don't be like that. They're bad. That's not his point. Because elsewhere he says, you know, he gives us the grace of this is what you used to be. There's no pride for, for the believer. God enlightens us and he gets the glory. His point, though, is this is the way you used to be. Don't be like that anymore. Are you callous? Do we still have calluses of thinking, habits of thinking or sin that we still do? Paul is emphatic, stop it. Stop, don't be that way anymore. Jesus had a lot more grace. You know, Paul was a little bit more blunt. Stop it. Look at what he says in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. These are some of the most practical verses on how to live as a believer. So we talked at the beginning of this idea of calluses, Am I the only one in here that has struggled since coming to know Christ, of knowing what's true, of of like the first three chapters in Ephesians, loving how great God is and all the things, and then still being drawn towards sin? And, And there's this tension of that's not, I know this is right and this is wrong, but yet I still have a, I still kind of want to go this way at times. I'm the only one. Paul gives us some practical counsel here how to walk. He gives us a command, walk worthy. Don't walk like the Gentiles, now walk like the new person you are. But we ask the question, you know, how? What's this look like? Well, he begins here, and I think this is helpful, by telling them that they did not learn Christ. Verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. Notice he doesn't say learned about Christ. These words are intentional. That's not the way you learned Christ. Christ. He's speaking of an experiential relationship, which, which requires growing in knowledge, learning, studying Scripture. This is where we learn about God right here primarily. So it includes studying Scripture, but it's experiential also that we get to know Him. It's learning how to walk through life with Him. It's, it's obeying the things of Scripture and learning that they're actually true. It's going through hard times in life. You know, the song, It Is Well With My Soul, and realizing, no, God does walk through it with us. Learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person and being shaped by his teaching. That's what it means to learn Christ. Paul is making a claim of absolute truth here. Our society claims relativism, meaning you can believe what you want to believe, you can believe what you want to believe. Our truth can be true for us. Paul here is claiming there is absolute truth and it's found in God and revealed in Jesus. There is absolute morality that is actually best for you, and it's found in Jesus. This idea of you can define your good and I can define mine is not biblical. And guess what? It's not true. And we know it's not true. That's why he talks about the truth in Christ. And elsewhere, he talks in here about the deceitfulness of sin, the lie, the the whisper of the world's way is better. 
this way makes sense. It's deceitful. And, it, and our flesh wants to go that way. So what do we do? You know, we, we learn Christ, but then how do we walk in a way that's worthy? How do we change from how we used to be? Well, it begins in our mind. It begins in our mind. It's the opposite of, of being a hard-hearted person. It's being mold, moldable and teachable. The picture is kind of of clay, of soft clay. It's being soft clay in God's hands, in Jesus' hands. Now, Paul Ingram, not the Apostle Paul, Paul likes to talk about saying yes to Jesus before you know what it is. That's what it is. It's coming to God, ready to say yes to what he reveals, because before you knew Christ, you had a pattern of living and thinking, right? Then you say yes to Jesus, and if you haven't done that, I hope that today you see the truth in Jesus. Say yes to Jesus, and he wants to change your pattern of thinking and living. But there's a transition there. It takes some time time to learn, to adjust, to change those habits. And it begins in our mind. The, the first step for a Jesus follower is to remove their former way of living that was apart from Jesus. Their former way of living, and I would say and thinking. There's a couple theological terms. You can leave that up. A couple theological terms that, that if you're into it, that's great. If not, you can just disregard it. But the truths uh, that theologians have expressed here of this tension between the first three chapters of Ephesians and here, of the here's who you are in Christ, rest in who you are, now you should live differently. There's this tension between the already done and the becoming. That you are saved, you have been saved, but you're continually being saved. The first word is justification. The word justification means to be just, to be justified, to be made right with God. This is something that happened one time in the past. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, when you, by faith, accept Jesus as Lord, place your life in His hands, you are justified. Not because you're good, not because you're righteous, because Jesus is righteous. And He takes your filthiness... And he places himself over you. So when God sees you, he sees Christ. And you are then justified, made right with him. Then all the things in Ephesians 1 through 3 are yours. They're given to you. They're done to you. The second word is sanctified or sanctification. Sanctification is now a process by which we become more and more like Jesus. Look at verse 24 real quick. We're going to skip ahead. But in verse 24... It says, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In my personal reading this morning, I read where God says, be perfect as I am perfect. So the goal is to be like God. I mean, not God's, but in holiness and righteousness. So the goal is to be Christ-like. That's what we're working toward. And that is a process by which we become more and more like Christ. We love what God loves. We get sick of sin the way God hates sin. And it's a, it's a process. And unlike justification, which God does to you, sanctification is a process in which we participate. There's the hard part. As we as Christians come to know Christ and we study the Bible, it's like, okay, this is who I am. Now I want to live this way. There's the temptation, and you may be told, it's only in the power of the Holy Spirit, so let go and let God. Well, that's true. But then it also tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that's also true. So there's this tension of who we are in him and then how we participate with him and our lives being changed to look different. And guess what? We're going to struggle with that tension our entire lives. 
because the effort we put in needs to be in the power of the Holy Spirit, absolutely. But yet there is still effort put into it. That's why Paul begins here in verse 17 saying, I insist that you do this, meaning put every effort into doing this. And what's the effort into? Taking off the old self and putting on the new self. The old self that is susceptible to the deceits of sin. So the words used are actually that of putting on and taking off clothing. So here's the... Here's the old self. You know, this is, this is the way we used to be. This is a nice old jacket. Uh, if you can't tell, it's been used for a lot of work. Uh, it's been around, but it's still comfy, and it's still warm. Uh, I let Callie use it to paint, if you can't tell. Um, but this is kind of the old self. Comfortable wearing this jacket. Love this jacket. This is who I was. And so the, the idea, though, is he says, take who you used to be. You know, maybe there's old things in the pockets that remind you of places you used to go. He says, take off the old self. This isn't done to you. you notice you're doing this. If I just stood here and waited for somebody to come take off my jacket, that'd be weird. No, take off your old self, but not just that. He says, and now put on the new self. This is who you are in Christ, so put it on. Think differently. This is active. We do this. I take off the old self. I put on the new self. So this is uh, the idea. Okay, so I used to think in a, in a certain way. Now, as I'm coming to know Christ, I come to him moldable. I come to his word teachable, and he reveals something in me, and I go, oh, I'm not supposed to live that way or think that way. I take that off. How am I supposed to live and think? I put this on. Now, if you're anything like me, you can do this, right? You have a good devotional time in the morning, a good time with Christ of repentance and, and turning to him. God, teach me. And then you go through your day. You go through and you start working and you're going to school. You're, you're just doing the things you're doing. You go for your run. You go to the gym. You turn on some TV, you know, and you're just going through life, you know, doing the things that you do because we're all busy. We're all consumed, you know, and you come back home at the end of the day. Uh, you say hi to the kids and then you walk in the bathroom and you look in the mirror like, how did I get that back on? I took that off, you know, and we put on our, we put our old self back on. It's not who we are, but we can still walk that way. We can be deceived that that's, the, and so all of a sudden we're wearing this junky old jacket again. Like, darn it, we've got to take this off. So, the, I mean, the question is, how often do we do this? All the time. All the time. Jesus told his disciples, take up your cross daily and follow me. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. He says, I have crucified my flesh. This is something we do frequently. It's another way of saying the same thing. Take off the old self and then kill it. And guess what? You're going to have to do it again tomorrow because your old patterns are going to rise up and your calluses are there and maybe you need a, a, a new sensitivity to God's way. In essence, we are called to an ongoing process of complete repentance. An ongoing process of complete repentance, meaning we're going through life and God reveals things to us. And we repent and we turn. And then he reveals something more to us. And we repent and we turn. And, and maybe it's something we knew, but guess what? We've stepped back into it. Repent. Take off the old self. Put on the new self. We participate in our own growth by letting the Holy Spirit change and give us a new way of thinking. 
It's who we are. It's who we are. The example that kind of came to mind, and my girls don't really remember this, but, but I remember this. It was a year or so ago, uh, and we heard about another girl about their age in school or a friend. I don't remember who it was, but there was some bullying going on where, where you know, she was taking those who were you know, weaker or uglier, whatever she thought, and just bashing them. Um, and, of course, I heard about that, and that kind of just gets me a little bit riled up, you know, that somebody stronger will take advantage of those weaker just to pump themselves up. And I got a little fired up, and I remember grabbing the girls and saying, hey, we don't do that. They're like, we didn't. I know you didn't. <laughs> but don't ever, or I'll throw you off the deck. That's not, <laughs> you know, but I, I said, that's not who we are. You know, we're, we're carpenters. We come alongside people. We don't bash people for, you know, and it's not that we're carpenters. It's who we are in Christ. This is who we are. We're part of a family. We live this way. And so that's this picture. You're new to live this way. Now, this came to mind as I was kind of studying this and thinking about it. Sometimes living the new way doesn't feel natural. In fact, you might feel like a hypocrite by walking in the new way because you really want to go the old way. Well, what he's talking about is put on that new self. Even if it doesn't feel right at the moment, you know it's right, walk that way. And, and he'll help change those habits. He'll help break down those old calluses you know, and make you sensitive to him. Again, we participate, but how do we do it? It's in the brain. He says here, uh, verse 23, he, say, he says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. There's kind of the secret to this whole passage. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Renewed. You have the old way, this old jacket. Be renewed. There's patterns. You go this way. Renew them. Wash them clean. It's, it's a process. Again, this is where we come moldable to Scripture and let God change us. We come moldable to church, to group, to God's things, and we're ready to say yes to Him. On the other side is I believe what I want to believe, and I'm stuck there, and you can't convince me otherwise. And then you hear, and you're hard-hearted. You're not going to change. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says it this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Are you teachable? Last year, uh, when doing youth group, we had a, a week where we were going to talk about sex and sexuality and, and those things. And whenever I do that, I send an email to parents just saying, warning, we're going to be talking about this stuff so you know. Uh, you're welcome to attend or whatever. And I got an email from a parent that said, I won't tolerate uh, any teaching, I won't tolerate my kid hearing any teaching that says sex outside of marriage is bad. I mean, that was a hard, hard unwilling to even listen to God's way. I want that, that sex outside of marriage to be okay, and I won't tolerate even my kid being taught elsewhere, anything else. He said, and I won't tolerate any teaching that tells my kid that there's, there's anything wrong with homosexuality, anything like that. He had, he had drunken the Kool-Aid of what the world says and says, I won't even tolerate. That's that's the opposite. You, you see that? That's the hard heart rather than a teachable spirit. And the goal, as we mentioned, the goal of our new life is practical Christ-likeness. Practical Christ-likeness. Look at verse 24. It says, put on the new self 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness. The picture here is of a restoration of how it was in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. That's pretty cool. It's a, you know, God made Adam and Eve good and sinless until they sinned. They chose to sin. But that's the state that we're moving back to of spiritual purity. That word righteousness, it, it speaks of walking rightly. It's living in right relationship with God. It's walking. And then holiness. This is interesting because this word holy is only used twice in Scripture. The word holy is all over the place, but this unique word is only used twice. Most places, holy, it's the same word as, as uh, you know, set apart, sanctified, set apart for a purpose. This one actually means free from contamination. That's what this word means. So it's the picture of metal you know, being purified. Maybe you've watched some of those shows where they take gold or silver and they heat it up and the impurities come to the surface and you remove it and you, and you make it pure. That's what this is talking about, that you in Christ, you keep coming to Christ, come to God, and he will purify you, remove those impurities. This is the goal. So how, how do we live this out? Take off the old self, put on the new self. Don't live like you used to. Where are those places you used to go that if you still go there want to draw you away? What were those sources you used to listen to or, or to read for advice that would take you away from God's way? Do you still read those? Do you still look at those? Who were those friends that when you hung out with, they just drew you this way? Do you still go and hang out with them? Now, I believe as believers, we want to hang out with them to, to bring them to Christ. But if you're going to hang and they're just pulling you down, maybe, maybe you need to take a break. Stop going to those places. And that, that's the old self. And then the new self, place yourself in environments like this where God is here, among his people, where they can help you know, point you to truth and walk with you in grace and in love. That's this picture. Don't do it the way you used to. Do it a new way. Do it God's way. Old self and new self. Now, this week in groups, we're going to talk about this a little more. Not rooted groups, but our normal groups. Uh, we're going to wrestle with this. What does it look like to actually live this out? But the goal is Christ-likeness. And we should not tolerate sin in our own lives. I'm not talking about looking at others unless in our own lives. We cannot tolerate a, a darkness. The, the calluses that are still there, we turn to God. We let Him change us. Now, we're going to move to our time of response, our time where we, we sing and we worship. Um, and during this time, we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, communion. It's the bread and the cup up here. Now, this was given to us by Jesus on the night that he died, the night he was betrayed. He did this with his disciples, and he gave them the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, remember my death until I come again. And so the com communion is us remembering Jesus' death. We never move past the cross. But he also said that night, he said, do this as often as you do it until I come back. So we're not going to do this forever, but we're looking forward to his return. And here's the other aspect of communion, of the Lord's Supper. It's for believers only. Okay, so if you're not a believer, don't take it. Uh, go see, we're going to have prayer responders that will pray with you in the back. If you want to know more about following Jesus, go see them. They can pray with you and, and explain the gospel, and then you're free to take. 
But also for those of us who are believers, it's a time for us, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, to examine ourselves. That's perfect with this passage we just looked at. Before you take it, spend a minute praying. Examine yourself. Say, God, where am I still callous? Where is my thinking still off, still worldly, still like it used to be? Show me where you want to change my thinking or my lifestyle or my habits. And then give that to him, commit to that change, and come take the Lord's Supper. Maybe you need to go write a prayer request or a confession over here and put it in the wall. Maybe you need to go see one of our prayer responders and pray with them. But however you need to respond to God's word, let's do that now. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for your death and for your resurrection. I thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We don't deserve this new life in you. We don't, de we don't deserve to be adopted into your family, co-heirs with you, forgiven completely. We don't deserve any of that. But we thank you that we have it in you. And now, God, I, I do pray that, Holy Spirit, you would prompt us that we would not be okay with sin in our lives, that we would not be okay with old ways of thinking that are like the world, that you would show us. And then, Holy Spirit, I beg you to empower us to walk in victory. Empower us, change our minds so we believe correctly and then translate that to our hearts to where we live correctly in the power of your Holy Spirit in relationship with you, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.